My thesis today is that we're surrounded by a dangerous tendency to believe in and promote a twisted Paul and a rejected Jesus. My appeal is that Unitarian believers take time to verify that they've not drifted away from their own heritage. This can easily happen when powerful new movements, even Unitarian ones, arise and exercise their persuasive power. I believe that the Unitarian people in the 1850s put their fingers on a fundamental flaw in popular versions of Christianity. The passage of time can almost inevitably lessen the clarity of that original Abrahamic discovery. We are all easily prone not to think critically, but just to go along with the status quo. To summarize, we are faced with a potential rejection of Jesus and a twisting of Paul. Let me show you this by quoting a famous dispensationalist and then citing a number of oddly neglected verses which if preached and emphasized could eliminate the dispensationalist error and restore the truth. It's only by having a passion for truth that, as Paul said, we can hope to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. First, we need to re-establish clarity on this point about covenant. The all-important covenant made with Abraham is different from the later covenant made with Moses. The covenant with Moses is not the same as the covenant made with Abraham, and certainly not the same as the covenant made by Jesus. To show this, I remind you of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. This verse established clearly that the Mosaic covenant made at Sinai, or Horeb, was not made with our fathers. Our faith must therefore have its foundation in the promises made to Father Abraham, not the covenant made with Moses. True Christianity means having the faith of Abraham. Romans 4 verse 16, which is also called the faith of Jesus. You find that expression, faith of Jesus, in Romans 3.22 and 26. Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 and 20, and Galatians 3, verse 22, Ephesians 1, verse 15, Ephesians 3, verse 12, Philippians 3, verse 9, Colossians 1, verse 4, and Colossians 2, verse 5, James 2, verse 1, Philemon, verse 5, Revelation 2, verse 13, and Revelation 14, verse 12, and 19, verse 10. I note that this is the faith of Jesus, not just faith in Jesus, which is much too vague a definition. The biggest lies have the best chance of being believed. The biggest lies, too, can be what you don't say. 
what you leave out of your gospel story. A number of fundamentally important verses are just not reaching the public ear. The apostles and Jesus, with amazing foresight, warned us against being deceived, against being hoodwinked on the issue of the gospel. His apostles were inspired to see what was coming and warned precisely and deliberately, as in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, and 2 John, verses 7 to 9. The major issue is failure to believe and obey the teachings of Jesus. These verses are not getting enough attention. They sound the alarm against any loss of the teaching of Jesus. I want to do my best to correct that threatening situation. My point is a simple one. The gospel preached by Jesus has been gutted of its major component and has been replaced by a half gospel. The first element in the gospel, the kingdom, has been put out of sight. The gospel, as Jesus and Paul preached it, does not just offer us forgiveness of sin, huge as that is, but forgiveness so that we may then go on to regain the status lost in Adam and thus to find our true destiny. We are saved not just to be forgiven, but in view of the great overarching Bible purpose as described in Jeremiah 27 verse 5, this is one of the grandest accounts of the gospel. God wants to give us the whole world as our inheritance. God said there in Jeremiah 27 verse 5, As I have made the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm, I can give it to whomever I see fit. Jesus echoed these words when he said, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure and desire to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. This is exactly repeated in Romans 4, verse 13, which reads, The promise to Abraham and to his seed is that he would have the world as his inheritance. Christians, of course, are defined by Paul as the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 29. I remind you of these words from an Archbishop of Canterbury about the astonishing absence of the gospel of the kingdom during all of church history. Absence of the gospel means, of course, absence of Jesus, and thus absence of Christianity. The Archbishop wrote, and please allow for his tendency to British understatement, every generation finds something in the gospel which is of special importance to itself and seems to have been overlooked in the previous age or sometimes in all previous ages of the church. 
The great discovery of the age in which we live is the immense prominence given in the gospel to the kingdom of God. To us, it is quite extraordinary that it figures so little in the theology and religious writings of almost the entire period of Christian history. Certainly, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom has a prominence that could hardly be increased. In this, our 30th year of presenting reflections on the current state of affairs among the kingdom Unitarian people, my sense is that a serious division has arisen among us affecting the very heart of the teaching of Jesus himself. I start by pointing out that your living in a Bible atmosphere in America, which does not take the gospel of Jesus, that's to say the gospel as preached by Jesus, anything like as seriously or precisely as our Bible documents. All of you listening are probably quite convinced that the gospel of the kingdom was the heart of Jesus' business. To test yourself on that point, is anyone in our audience doubtful about Luke chapter 4, verse 43? That's the verse which supplies and provides Jesus' own mission statement, his specific purpose statement. You would think that this ought to be basic for all believers. A grand John 3.16. But it is not. Tracts and books on salvation simply omit Luke chapter 4 verse 43. Rick Warren's purpose-driven church does not even mention it. Likewise, if you happen to have been touched by the theology of so-called dispensationalism, you will have been taught, and most misleadingly, that the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel for you today. I quote as one example the 21st chapter of Clarence Larkin's book, his commentary on Daniel. He rightly states that the gospel of the kingdom was preached by Jesus and the apostle. But this, Larkin maintains, was only to Jews. And when the Jews generally refused it, that gospel of the kingdom, he says, ceased. And it was replaced by what Larkin calls the gospel of the grace of God. This is an astonishing systematic error, calculated, I think, to invite the chilling words of Jesus when he said that only those who hear and do what he says can hope to qualify for the kingdom and salvation. Luke 6, verse 46. Here are the complete words of Larkin on the gospel. The word gospel means good news, he says. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God is going to set up a kingdom of the earth over which David's son, Jesus, shall reign. 
Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. This gospel was proclaimed by John the Baptist and by Jesus and his disciples in the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This call to repent was not to individuals but to the nation. The nation refused and rejected the king and crucified him. But before the king's death, the gospel of the kingdom, which up to that time had been preached only in Palestine and not in all the world, that gospel was withdrawn. It is to be preached again after the church has been caught up, and then not only in Palestine, but in the whole world. And it's a call to Israel as a nation to repent, and that Christ is coming to set up the stone of Daniel 2, verses 34 and 35, and verses 44 to 45. In other words, the millennial kingdom. Dispensationalism, Clarence Larkin went on to say, which is widespread in evangelicalism, teaches then that between the two preachings of the gospel of the kingdom, we have the preaching of a different gospel of the grace of God. It's the proclamation of salvation through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That again is a quotation from the Reverend Clarence Larkin, author of the great book on dispensational truth, written in 1929. I remind you here of Jesus' words. Multitudes will say to me on that future day, Lord, Lord, look what we did by way of preaching for you and even doing miracles for you. Jesus' response is simply that they had not laid the foundation of sound teaching by making his kingdom gospel the heart and center of everything preached. Jesus was warning about Christian failure in the context of his call that we are to beware of false prophets. Matthew 7, verses 15 and 21. I was thrilled recently to find the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges stating on Hebrews 2 that Jesus was the first preacher of his own gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. That is superbly true. But the Billy Graham system insists that and I quote, Jesus came to do three days' work, to die, to be buried, and to rise from death. But that definition eliminates a major neglected text, which, I argue, can bring us all back on track. That is Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which brilliantly states that the subject of Mark's writing is the beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the middle, not the end, not one part of it, but the beginning of the gospel as Jesus preached it. The definition of the gospel is then provided for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. The gospel is called God's gospel, uniting it to eight other occurrences across the New Testament of that same phrase. That's to say, God's gospel in Mark 1, 14, Romans 1, verse 1, Romans 15, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2, 8, and 9, 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, and 1 Peter 4, verse 17. God's gospel, that's to say the gospel coming from God, providing the most essential indispensable foundation for Christianity. It is God's gospel about the kingdom. When we speak of the gospel to our friends, there's no better place to begin than Mark chapter 1 verse 1. But you will not find this passage in any tract offering salvation. Nor astonishingly will you find Acts 20 verse 24 and the following verse 25 which provides a marvelous definition of what Paul preached as the gospel. I remind you that in Acts 20 verse 24 Paul summarized his whole Christian preaching career by saying that he had preached the gospel of the grace of God. Ask your friends politely what the next verse says. I don't think they will know. Verse 25, which is carefully avoided in evangelical literature, defines what is meant by that gospel of grace. Paul defines that gospel of grace as his own preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul then sounds just like Jesus and sanity is restored to the whole New Testament gospel. It's about the kingdom. Jesus and Paul have to be reconnected. I suggest that there's a concerted effort in much of evangelicalism to keep that simple, fatal detachment of Jesus and Paul out of sight. So then, there are different ways of avoiding the truth about the gospel. Dispensationalism of the Larkin type simply announces that the gospel of the kingdom ceased when the Jews rejected it, but that it will be resumed only after the imaginary pre tribulation rapture. That dispensationalism forbids you then from effectively obeying the opening command of Jesus in Mark 1 verses 14 to 15, which says, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. 
Salvation is by obedience to Jesus. So we read in Hebrews 5 verse 9, and here in Mark chapter 1 is his first command. I think it's time for us to remind ourselves that the Jesus story is the story of the whole Bible, and it's a Jewish story. The very first thing said about Jesus is that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Israel, and his kingdom will be endless. That's Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. Jesus will inherit what's called the sure mercies of David. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, these are called the covenantal promises. And this is the new covenant. I certainly could not have known of any of this in the first 20 years of my Church of England experience. I'm not lying. I was there. The kingdom of God is the heart and center of the new, not the old Mosaic covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 20 and 21, God made his point with ultimate emphasis. He said, if you can alter my covenant with day and night, you can alter my covenant with David, so that he will never cease to have a king ruling on his throne. That is the gospel, too. If you lose that, you lose the gospel and Christianity. If we are not teaching with complete clarity the fact that the new covenant is the covenant about the kingdom of God, we are missing out on very much. Thus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus stated that he was covenanting not just giving, but covenanting his disciples a kingdom, just as God had covenanted a kingdom to him as Messiah. To say then that this kingdom covenant belongs in the Old Testament is a way of cancelling Jesus, something we must never risk doing. Here's what's happened. Evangelicalism has rightly stressed that the death of Jesus results in our being forgiven for our sins. But the gospel did not begin with that fact. The great fact which is so desperately missing from popular preaching is that Jesus and God's intention is to give us the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. Your father is delighted to give you the kingdom. And that kingdom was defined with complete clarity to Abraham. The promise was to Abraham and his descendants, who are us, that he would be heir of the entire world. Not the universe, but the world as created for man. It was precisely this which we remember Adam lost. And it's precisely this which Jesus, as the second Adam, made it his business to restore. Now please note that there's an extant Unitarian translation of the Bible, which, number one, states that the four Gospels really belong 
in the Old Testament. And secondly, there is no reason to baptize in water today. In those early teenage years of Jesus, as he searched the scriptures daily, he found his own career in them, the career of the one designated by God to restore law and order, peace and security, and the abolition of all hostility between nations. Jesus had read, you see, and he comes to us as a kind of Mozart of biblical exposition, he had read that God was going to plant or sow a new people. I will plant my people in the land. Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. Yes, God was going to sow them. It follows, of course, that Jesus spoke primarily and always of the parable of the sower, where the saving gospel message itself is defined as the gospel message about the kingdom. Matthew 13 verse 19. If one loses track of that basic fact, then one has lost the foundation of the Christian faith and one risks building on sand. Evangelical tracts offering what they call salvation do not have a word to say about the parable of the sower. Why is it that everyone knows you must be born again to be saved, John 3. But almost no one tells you that being born again can only happen when you are exposed to the seed gospel which was preached to you, the seed of immortality which was preached to you as gospel, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verses 23 to 25. What has happened is that the Christian future, that's to say the hope on which faith and love depend, has been reduced and cancelled and replaced by, quote, going to heaven when you die to do who knows what. Jesus was of the opposite opinion. How blessed are the meek, he said, they're going to have the earth or land as their inheritance, as in Matthew 5, verse 5, quoting from five verses in Psalm 37. And in Romans 8, verse 32, how much more will God give to us and to Jesus everything? Did you grasp that God wants to give you the world as your inheritance? The International Critical Commentary has this excellent statement. Jews as vassals of a legal system do not qualify as true believers. As one of the descendants of Abraham, Abraham's seed was to enjoy worldwide dominion. This faith righteousness, which Paul described as characteristic of the Christian and before him of Abraham, is the right to universal dominion which will belong to the Messiah and his people. If the right to universal dominion which will belong to the Messiah and to his people is confined to those who are subject to the law of Moses, what can it have to do 
either with the promise originally given to Abraham or the faith to which that promise was annexed. If these promises belonged to the law of Moses, then they would be pushed aside and cancelled altogether. That's a quotation from Sande and Hedlam, International Commentary on Romans, page 111. And that, of course, would be ultimate Christian failure. Please make sure you know that Jesus was the first preacher of his own gospel, that Jesus is not a warmed-over copy of Moses, on no account be guilty of cancelling Jesus in the name of a twisted Paul. By no means should you say that Jesus is the model of the Old Covenant. That would be the worst form of being out of date. The Torah of Messiah is not the Torah of Moses. Paul is willing in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 20 to 21 to do Moses' things when in the company of Jews who are under the law in order to win them. Paul, speaking for Jesus, is himself not under that Mosaic law, but rather within the Torah of Messiah, a huge difference. To preserve the Abrahamic faith, or the faith of Abraham, Romans 4 verse 16, to preserve it intact, these truths must be consciously struggled for. I note that the Apostle's first application of this principle is to the religio-national distinctions related to being Jews or Gentiles, being circumcised or uncircumcised. In a Gentile situation like that in Corinth, some Jews may have tried to obliterate the covenant mark of circumcision. Compare with that 1 Maccabees 1 verse 15. On the other hand, Judaizers tried to force circumcision on the Gentile Christians. Acts 15, 1 to 5, and Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 5, verse 1. Paul argues that this outward sign of circumcision, with its stress on the Jew versus the non-Jew, now has no significance. If a person was circumcised as a Jew when he was saved, he should not become uncircumcised. If he was uncircumcised as a Gentile, he should not be circumcised in order to become Jewish. Circumcision and uncircumcision now make no difference at all. Romans 2 verse 25 and 29, Galatians 5 verse 6, but keeping God's command is essential. Galatians 5 verse 19, John 14 verse 15. That's a quotation from the Expositor's Bible Commentary.